0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Greetings, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part two in our series on Spanish Conquistador Hernan Cortes and the Conquest of Mexico. Let's get right to it. Last time, we left Cortes poised to move up the coast of Mexico from the city of Patanchen, where Cortes and his men had defeated the local Tabascan people at the Battle of Centla. The Spanish had suffered only two deaths in the fighting, while the Tabascans had lost over 800 men. In the wake of his great victory, Cortes had been presented with the spoils of war, including slaves, jewelry, silver, and gold. The latter is what the Spanish coveted most, and they were told it was found in abundance to the West. I often make fun of the Spanish as they fall for this trick throughout history. They ask the native people, where is the gold? And the natives reply, we don't have any, but go that way and you'll find a bunch of it. The Spanish inevitably go chasing after whatever tale they were told and usually end up disappointed or dead. However, this time the local Maya people were not feeding Cortes a bunch of fairy tales. To the west lay the great Aztec Empire, which was rich and powerful. Cortes and his fleet sailed roughly 250 miles along the coast of Mexico, reaching San Juan de Alúa, which is at Modern de Veracruz, on April 20, 1519. San Juan de Alúa boasted a good harbor, where the ships would be protected from bad weather. It did not take long for some boats, containing local religious leaders and chieftains, to approach Cortez's ship, where they were welcomed aboard. Here, communication would be critical, and Cortez would be in luck as he had a translator. The native spoke Nahuac, which I have read described as a highland Mayan language, and is quite different from coastal Mayan. One of the slaves given to Cortez by the Tabascan people after his recent victory was a woman named La Malinche, who spoke Nahuac and coastal Mayan. Thus, these newcomers could speak to her in Nahuac, and she could translate to Father Aguilar, who could then translate to Cortes in Spanish. This is somewhat clumsy, but as we have seen in other episodes of Explorers, it works. And it will give Cortes an immense advantage compared to the Explorers who had come before him. These newly encountered dignitaries said that they represented Mexico, the Aztec Empire. They had received word of Cortes's victory at Potantin, and they welcomed him with gifts, including items of elaborate featherwork, bits of gold jewelry, and clothing. Cortes gave the Indians food, wine, glass beads, and various metal goods. Cortes told the emissaries that he came in peace and that he wanted to trade. He also asked to meet the local leader, a man identified as Tendil, who resided about 20 miles away. The emissaries agreed to bring back the request to their leader before departing. All in all, it had gone pretty well. The next day, which was Good Friday... Cortes began to land his force, including soldiers, horses, hounds, artillery, and provisions, showing the locals that they had no intention of leaving any time soon. Emissaries would arrive at the Spanish camp the next morning, and from them, Cortes would first hear about the great and powerful ruler of Mexico, Montezuma. Montezuma, the Spanish learned, ruled over the Aztec Triple Alliance, three cities, Tenochtitlan, Texcoco, and Tacuba all of them located in the Valley of Mexico, about 200 miles away, as the crow flies, to the northwest. Now, something I want to mention about the Aztec Empire. We sort of jumble many of the people we will meet as Aztecs, but in reality, we have to understand that the Empire was a vast confederation of cities and lands, with many different ethnic groups and distinct cultures and customs. They all owed their allegiance to the Aztec Empire, which had existed for about 100 years and controlled much of central Mexico. Other emissaries would soon arrive at the Spanish camp, some bearing gifts. These gifts included fine garments, feathers, jewelry, food, and items of gold. A note about feathers. The people of Mexico were nuts about them. They loved feathers and incorporated them into all aspects of their lives, including religion. Featherwork was a noble and respected craft. There are surviving samples of Aztec featherwork that are just amazing. I have posted a photo on our website, ExplorersPodcast.com, of a feather headdress worn by Montezuma and given to Cortez. It is extraordinary. These are wonderful pieces of art and were highly valued by the Aztec people. In fact, while the Aztecs liked gold and silver and other precious metals, rare and beautiful feathers held a higher value. You'll find the Aztecs more willing to give up gold than these feathers. But enough about feathers. I have a quick side note regarding Montezuma, the Aztec emperor. Specifically, I want to discuss the pronunciation of his name. You will find many different versions of Montezuma's name. Moctezuma is very common, for instance. I am going to use Montezuma, which is very much a Western pronunciation. It is what I have grown up saying, and it is what I am most comfortable using. So Montezuma it is. On April 23rd, Easter Sunday, Governor Tendil, the local ruler and Montezuma's official emissary, arrived at Cortez's camp. The visit was an elaborate affair. Tendil brought with him several thousand attendants, many dressed in their finest clothing and adorned with rare feathers. He also brought gifts from Montezuma. This included featherwork, jewels, and gold. Tendil told the Spanish about the great emperor, who lived far away in the mountains in the city of Tenochtitlan. Montezuma, they were told, was beloved by his people, as well as feared. Next, it was Cortez's turn. He presented the governor with an intricately fashioned armchair. Cortez said it was for Montezuma, and that the emperor could sit in it when Cortes came to visit a pretty presumptuous thing to say. Cortes then told the Aztecs about his king, Charles, comparing him to Montezuma. It was a clever move by Cortes. He wanted to convey to the Aztecs that he was the ambassador of a mighty and powerful leader. And while Cortes acknowledged the greatness of Montezuma, he always insisted his king was just as powerful and worthy of respect. He told the Aztecs that he had been instructed by his king to meet personally with Montezuma. This refusal to acknowledge Montezuma as a more powerful leader than Spain's King Charles meant that the Aztecs couldn't gain an edge on Cortes. They were so accustomed to negotiating with others from a position of power, yet when Cortes refused to acknowledge that superiority, it sort of threw them for a loss, and Cortes will later use this indecision to his advantage. During this initial meeting, Aztec artists expertly sketched what they saw onto large canvases, a way to convey the scene to Montezuma. They drew portraits of Cortes, his captains, and the soldiers, as well as the ships and dogs and horses. Cortes would then go about impressing the Aztec nobles by having his men put on display of their power. You know the routine, horses, dogs, military drill, and let's not forget the firearms and cannons. Tendil and his advisors were astounded as the world shook at the power of these strange men. They had never seen anything like it. For Cortes, he wanted to literally put the fear of God into the Aztecs. And I say that quite seriously. The Aztecs wondered, who are these men who controlled fire and thunder, and commanded strange and ferocious creatures? Did they possess supernatural powers? Were they gods? It was a serious question, and one that the Aztecs could not answer. And it is a question that will haunt them and Montezuma. That aside, before departing, the Aztec ambassador, Tendil, asked if he could bring one of the steel Spanish helmets to his emperor. Cortes agreed, as long as it was returned filled with gold. It was here that Cortes then offered up his famous line regarding his desire for gold. He said, quote, I and my companions suffer from a disease of the heart which can be cured only with gold. End Tendiel departed, saying he would send word to Montezuma and return in the coming days. Also, he left 2,000 workers to aid Cortes. They were welcome as they could help make huts, cook, and collect food. So while the Spanish waited for the return of Tendil, Cortez and his men reinforced their camp and tried to stay busy. Cortez's translator, La Malinche, showed her talent for languages and began to learn Spanish. Soon she would be able to speak directly to Cortez instead of through Father Aguilar. Ten days later, Governor Tendil returned along with one hundred bearers. One after another, the bearers would present a collection of gifts for Cortez. Tendil had taken note of the Spanish desire for gold, so there was lots of it. There were plates and ornaments of gold and silver, a dozen arrows made of pure gold, and bracelets and necklaces and figurines, all of gold. One of the Spaniards, Bernal Diaz, wrote that the bearers set out two huge plates of gold and silver that were, quote, as large as carriage wheels, end quote. In addition, there was jade, turquoise, and other jewels. Also, intricate and elaborately embroidered clothing was presented, as well as more featherwork, Beautiful pieces put together by artisans that rivaled anything in the world, including those in Europe and China. And then, to the astonishment of Cortez and his men, the steel Spanish helmet, given to Tendil just ten days before, was set before them. It was filled with gold nuggets. This was an extraordinary presentation. This was treasure. The exact thing that the Spanish wanted so desperately. However, in addition to this wondrous trove, Tendil brought a message. Take these gifts and go. So there it was, a massive bribe. To be honest, Cortez could have taken all of this loot and went home a happy camper. But the display put on by Montezuma's ambassadors had the opposite effect on Cortez and his men. This trove of treasure only confirmed to them that there was more where this came from, a lot more, and if they didn't get it, someone else would. Cortez would thank Tendil for all the gifts and indicated that he wanted to meet with Montezuma, and he asked the governor to convey the request to the emperor. Tendil agreed to pass on the message and departed. So it was time, again, for the Spanish to wait, and to, no doubt, contemplate the options ahead of them. As for the Captain General, well, there was no question. Cortez would not be leaving any time soon. He will become single-minded in his desire to go and meet Montezuma. But before he could do that, he had some issues to deal with if he wanted to succeed. The first issue was the location of the camp. Unfortunately, while San Juan de Lua was a good harbor, it had some problems. It was swampy and full of mosquitoes. Also, it was brutally hot and humid in the area. The swamps and mosquitoes meant illness, including malaria and dysentery, and the heat and the humidity wore down the Spanish, whose metal armor was ill-suited for the environment. Malaria was, in fact, going through the camp. Thirty men had died in the past couple of weeks from a combination of illness as well as wounds from the battle near Patanchen. The second issue Cortes had to deal with was discord in the ranks. Now, some of this was from the men who simply wanted to go home. They said they had gotten enough treasure and they should leave while they had the chance. But the biggest group of dissenters were those men loyal to Governor Vallesquez. Again, we have to remember that Cortes had raised this force, but he had done so as the official representative of Cuban Governor Diego Vallesquez. Many of these men had joined Cortes but were loyal to the governor above the Captain General. There were even relatives of Velasquez in the ranks. Some of these men said that Cortez was a usurper and a rebel, and that he was greedy and his avarice would only get them all killed. Cortez decided to tackle both problems with one solution. He would send out two expeditions, one by land and one by sea, in search of a better place to build a settlement. The goal was to find a location with a more mild climate and away from the swamps and the mosquitoes. These expeditions consisted of many of the men that Cortes believed to be Velasquez's loyalists. He figured this would keep the poisonous talk away from the main army, while also finding a more suitable location to establish the settlement. Win win. So, while Cortes waited, updates were delivered daily to Montezuma in Tenochtitlan regarding the strange newcomers. And with that, I think it's a good time to talk more about the Aztec ruler. Montezuma would have been in his early 50s at this time. He had come to power in 1502, and he had been successful. He had brought the Aztec Empire to its greatest size in its history. Montezuma was a deeply spiritual man, and he had been a high priest before becoming emperor. He took his religious role very seriously. And I can't stress how deeply religion was woven into the fabric of everyday life in the empire. There were over 200 deities in the Aztec pantheon, and it was an immensely complex religion. Now there are a few things about it that I want to mention, because they will play an important part in our story. At least they may play an important part. They likely played some part, we just don't know how much. If that doesn't make sense, don't worry. Just go with me here and you'll see what I mean. Two things. First, I want to mention the Aztec god Quetzalcoatl, one of the more prominent gods in the Aztec pantheon. Quetzalcoatl was the god of wind, air, rain, and learning. According to prophecy, Quetzalcoatl would return from the east as a bearded man, and he would shake the foundation of heaven and conquer Tenochtitlan. Well, here was Cortes, a guy with a beard, showing up out of the east with mysterious powers. Could Cortes be Quetzalcoatl reincarnated? Second thing, Cortez's arrival coincided with the end of the 52-year cycle of the Aztec calendar. These two items, as well as other factors, make people wonder if Montezuma feared that Cortes was indeed a prophecy come to life a prophecy that would bring about the end of the world, at least as Montezuma knew it. Thus, the most important thing for Montezuma was not necessarily to attack Cortes, but to get him to leave. If he left, the prophecy couldn't be fulfilled and his empire was safe. Now, this idea that Montezuma, as well as many of the Aztecs, saw Cortes and the Spanish as gods and were thus afraid to offend them is a popular theory played up by Western sources in the decades and centuries after these events. But was it true? Well, honestly, we don't really know. It's a great theory, and it fits the narrative really well, so it's hard to ignore. My thought is that it can't be dismissed entirely. Knowing the religious nature of the Aztecs, as well as Montezuma, they no doubt entertained all sorts of ideas about the Spanish. It would have been hard not to consider Cortes and his men, with their strange weapons and animals, as some sort of cataclysmic sign from the gods. However, we just can't state that as fact. Going forward, we will come back to this idea from time to time, but we always must look at it with wariness. Now, I have to be honest, we can apply this last sentiment to virtually everything we know about Montezuma. Sources are simply all over the board regarding the man. Some paint him as a heroic figure, others as an indecisive weakling. Which one is he? Again, we don't really know. Maybe some of both. No matter, I will just tell this story as best as possible and try and let you know when these kinds of things rear their uncertain heads. Now, back to our tale. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see, so, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. We know that Montezuma had gotten initial reports of Cortez's arrival and was very concerned. Word had come saying that Cortez was destroying idols and putting up new religious symbols in the temples. Many of the emperor's aides advised him to attack and wipe out the Spanish. Then Montezuma received reports from his emissaries, and he saw the drawings that his artists had rendered. As we have seen, Montezuma elected to try and bribe the Spanish, but that failed. The stranger still wanted to come and meet the emperor, something that Montezuma did not want to happen. He thus attempted another bribe, sending to Cortés more gifts, including emeralds and gold. But they had a clear message, take these and go. To emphasize the message, the 2,000 men Tendil had loaned to Cortés departed the camp. No more food or water or supplies were brought to the Spanish. Even the local people were gone, having retreated inland. The Spanish were now on their own. For Cortés, he knew, more than ever, that he wanted to march west to the heart of the Aztec nation. He was convinced that a fortune awaited him. Thus, the next thing he had to do was lock his army in on their mission. Remember, his men were tired and sick. Malaria and dysentery, as well as the heat and humidity, were making everyone miserable. And all the free laborers had just taken off. And let's not forget about the fact that Cortez was here illegally. Well, the next thing Cortez did was to take definitive steps to address the latter issue. First, he called together his officers, and then, in front of a notary, resigned his commission from Governor Velasquez. And then he followed it up by founding a new settlement, the Arica de la Ver Cruz, the rich town of the True Cross. Cortes had official papers written up and appointed officers, including a chief magistrate, a constable, and a notary. Next, he had a vote taken to elect the colony's new chief justice and captain general. Now, remember, Cortes had sent off two expeditions to search for a better place to build a settlement. Many of those men were supporters of Governor Valesquez. And don't think it was a coincidence that this vote now took place with all of those men missing. This meant that Cortes would be elected as the new colony's leader without any real debate. The Rica de la Vera Cruz was now an official settlement out from under the dominion of the governor of Cuba. The colony's officials, led by Cortes, were now answerable only to the king of Spain. Governor Valesquez was gone from the equation. The coup d'etat was complete. Cortes had again showed himself to be a deft and clever politician. Now, you may ask, was this all legal? And the answer is, well, kind of. In fact, Diego Velazquez had done this exact same thing in Cuba in 1515 to throw off the control of his boss, the Viceroy of the Indies. It must have burned Velazquez to find this law tactic he had used to his advantage be turned against him. Of course, that does not mean Velazquez will accept all of this. He will not, and there will eventually be a reckoning. However, for the time being, this somewhat sketchy but effective move gave Cortes legal clearance with his men, which is what he needed. With that settled, Cortes turned to dealing with his other problem, finding a better site to build a new settlement. Well, one of the expeditions would return and report a better spot up the coast about 20 or 30 miles. With that, Cortes and his men packed up and sailed up the coast of Mexico, leaving behind the mosquito-infested swamps of San Juan de Alúa. The expedition traveled up the coast where they debarked, Cortes, worried that the Aztecs would eventually launch an offensive against him, immediately set up a camp and went about searching for a place to build a fort. It was at this time that Cortes faced a possible insurrection within his ranks. Two of his captains announced that they would no longer follow Cortes, stating that he had overstepped his authority. Both men were staunch supporters of Governor Valasquez, and one of them was a relative of the governor. To forestall any sort of mutiny, Cortes moved quickly, he had both men put in chains and tossed on one of the ships under guard. Anyone who had been thinking about siding with the insurgents quickly backed off. They knew not to cross Cortez. The second thing that happened at this time was the appearance of the local natives. These were different people than those that the Spanish had encountered to the south. They were described as having pierced noses and ears, piercings large enough to put a finger through. The two sides approached each other, but Cortez and his men found them speaking a different language than the natives to the south. Luckily, some of the Indians spoke a bit of Nahuac, so a rough dialogue was conducted using La Malinche as the translator. These men were called Totonacs, and they had come from the city of Sempuala, which was about five miles away. They had come to treat with the Spanish and invite them to the city. Cortes agreed. The Spanish would find Sempuala, the home of more than 20,000 people, orderly and clean. There were walls, buildings, and homes made of stone and many of the homes were painted in bright colors, such as yellow, green, red, and blue. Also, there were a series of pyramids at the center of the town. The Spanish were led to the central square, where the locals came out to see the strange newcomers and their even stranger animals. Many thought the horses to be centaurs. It was here that Cortez was greeted by the town chief, a huge man named La Coche Calcedal. The chief had heard of the Spanish and was impressed by their victory over the Dabascans. Coche calqueto explained that the Totonacs, which were a loose confederation of about 30 or so towns, were subjects of the Aztec Empire, only having recently been conquered. Well, the Totonacs, Cortes was told, were a proud people, and the humiliation they suffered at the hands of the Aztecs was unbearable. They were forced to pay massive tributes to Montezuma, who demanded large numbers of young men and women, plus children, for sacrifice. All the Totonac people were upset by the burdens of this tribute. One tribe was still in revolt, having never given in. The Totonacs asked, could the Spanish perhaps use their great power to ease their woes? la cochcalcado told Cortes that if the Spanish would fight the Aztecs, they would be able to supply thousands of men for such a venture. And this is where Cortes must have had a vision. He understood that the great Aztec empire was not a single great nation linked by a common language or customs, but it was a land of distinct ethnic and cultural and geographic entities. He saw discontent. He saw anger. He saw an opportunity. The natives like the Totonacs were not enemies to be overcome, but allies to be added to his ranks. Cortes would agree to such an alliance. He now set the stage for the coming conflict with the Aztecs. He started by finally establishing his new town, Villarica de la Vera Cruz. Cortes selected a spot a few miles north of Sempoala, along the gulf waters near what is now called the Antigua River. Here, Cortes wanted to build a fort, the location featured a protected bay, and it was suitable for landings and commerce. Cortez envisioned a vibrant and active community. Now one thing I want to mention regarding the Arica de la Veracruz. The exact location of Veracruz actually changes over time, and I want to clarify that situation as it can be confusing. Cortez officially founded Veracruz while camped on the beaches of San Juan de Alúa, but that is only on paper. He did not actually start building anything until he picked a spot north of San Puala. The problem the city will have is that the Antigua River was shallow and larger ships could not go up it. This meant that ships would come to San Juan de Alúa and have their cargoes offloaded and brought up north to the settlement on smaller vessels. This was simply inefficient. Thus, a few decades later, the Spanish Crown would order the settlement move back to its original location. This means that Veracruz ended up right back at the same spot it started at decades before. I mention this because today San Juan de Alúa is part of Veracruz. And when I start talking about Veracruz being built up the coast, well, that is probably confusing to most people, as it was to me the first time I read about it. It's not a big deal in our story, but I wanted to make sure it was clear to everyone so we avoid any confusion. Back to the story. A short time later, Cortez would be presented with a golden opportunity with the arrival of Aztec tribute collectors. These collectors were described as arrogant and haughty. They arrived with a large retinue and acted unhurried and uninterested in others. They wore elaborately embroidered robes and carried roses, the latter a sign of being of the upper class. They would not even make eye contact with the local people, as they were seen as being inferior. It was easy to see why everyone hated them. The tribute collectors would berate the Totonac chiefs for hosting the Spanish without their permission. As punishment, they demanded twenty young men and women for sacrifice as a fine, this was in addition to their regular tribute. With this, Cortez saw his chance. Despite their reluctance to do so, he convinced the Totonac chiefs to seize the tribute collectors, whose leaders numbered five. By doing this, everyone was playing a dangerous game. This was defiance, and many shrank at the idea. But Cortez would swing them to his side when he told them that they would not have to pay any tribute going forward. In the end, the Totonacs' dislike for the Aztecs was so great, they did as told, and the tribute collectors were taken and put into chains. All their attendants fled. This was insurrection, and Cortes was part of it. However, Cortes had some cards to play. He started by freeing two of the five prisoners without the knowledge of the Totonacs. Cortes took the newly freed men aside, and feigned disgust at their treatment, and said that he had not wished for such actions. He only wanted peace, and to visit with the great Montezuma. Cortes then made sure the two of them would make a clear escape. He knew that they would go straight to their boss, Montezuma, and inform him of Cortez's supposed good deed. The next morning, the Totonacs were upset by the escape of the two men and wanted to sacrifice the additional three prisoners. Cortes intervened and convinced the Totonacs to give the three to him to ensure that they would remain prisoners. He then had the prisoners put on one of his ships. But again, once he had the three Aztec nobles in his custody, he told them the tale of how he wanted to help them and how he was a good and noble friend to Montezuma. All of this is Cortez playing rivals against one another. To the Totonacs, he was this bold and powerful ally. He had gotten rid of their taxes and saved their sons and daughters from the tribute collectors. As for the Aztecs, he confused them. I mean, on one hand, he was working with the Totonacs, but on the other hand, he had helped these nobles escape sacrifice. He had not, if you think about it, actually attacked or threatened the Aztec empire. Or the emperor. He just wanted to trade and go visit Montezuma, or so he said. Montezuma would respond to all this by sending yet another delegation to Cortes with more gifts. Cortes would accept these gifts and hand the hostages back to the emperor's emissaries. In the end, Montezuma said that he could not meet with Cortes, but the emperor did not threaten him or even ask him to leave. For Cortes, that was progress. In the meantime, Cortes worked to erect his new fortress. On June 28, 1519, Rica de la Veracruz, or simply Veracruz, was founded, the first colony in New Spain. Around this time, Cortes would confront two potentially dangerous situations. The first was with the Cempoalans, who would try and get Cortes involved in some intertribal squabbles with the town of Singapasinga. But the captain-general would have none of this petty foolishness. Angry at having his time wasted, he would respond by forcing the two rivals to put aside their squabbles and feuds and work together going forward. It was a smart move by Cortez, avoiding the petty fights that take a person's eye off the prize. Just look at what happened to Ferdinand Magellan, who died in a meaningless conflict on a beach in the Philippines. The second situation was more critical, and one of Cortez's own creation. Since arriving in Mexico, Cortez and his men had been watching the locals conduct human sacrifices on a regular basis, and they were, as we have mentioned, appalled by it. In the wake of his slapdown of the Sempualans, Cortes would grow bolder and take steps to convert the locals to Christianity. He insisted that they end human sacrifice and demanded that they destroy their idols. It was a risky thing to do, and the situation that developed was fraught with dangers. Cortes and 50 of his men went to the pyramids, intent on destroying the idols in and around them. The Totonac people predictably freaked out. They thought their world would end if the sacrifices stopped and their idols and temples were destroyed they prepared to fight. At this point, Cortez could have backed down, and it would have been the easy thing to do. But more than anything, he feared showing weakness in front of the local peoples. Instead, he upped the ante, threatening to kill the Sempoalan leader, La Cochca Quedal, and all of his priests. After a tense standoff, the Sempoalan leaders backed down. The Spanish proceeded to throw the idols, big and small, down the steps of the pyramid, smashing them to pieces the totonacs watched in horror many thinking their world was going to end at that very moment when done the spanish would convert one of the temples into a church cleaning it of any signs of sacrificial blood mass would be said at the newly consecrated shrine and eight young maidens recently given to cortez by the totonacs were baptized the reality of this situation is that the totonacs had taken the spanish as partners and when the totonacs didn't like the deal they had two options fight back or cave into spanish demands they went with the latter because, remember, the Totonac leaders had tossed out the Aztecs. They couldn't go back on that decision. The Totonacs had hitched their wagon to the Spanish army. To fight the Aztecs without the Spanish was courting disaster. So, the Totonacs endured the destruction of their idols because they had no other choice. It had probably been a soul-shattering moment for many of them. Their very way of life was now in question. In the end, Cortez had gotten away with it, but he had been very lucky. Emotions are a hard thing to predict. And if the locals had turned on the Spanish, well, things could have gotten ugly for everyone. With all of this behind him, Cortes may have thought that he was free of drama. But there was always something on the horizon. For Cortes, the new drama would coincide with the arrival of a ship at Veracruz. The ship, a caravel, was actually one that Cortes had hired back in Cuba, but had been late in departing. The ship had tracked down Cortez, bringing some needed food and provisions, as well as 60 soldiers and a dozen more horses. This was all good news. But there was more. The ship had also brought a letter from the King of Spain, a letter expressly authorizing Diego Velasquez, the governor of Cuba, to found settlements and establish trade in the lands of Mexico. Yeah, that must have been awkward. So Cortez now had to make some decisions. He had done all that he could to legitimize his expedition, but here was a letter specifically disputing all of his claims. He knew Governor Velasquez would come for him sooner or later. And with the letter from Spain seriously undercutting his authority, he knew he had to act, and act decisively. The first thing Cortes did was to organize a treasure ship to return to Spain. He loaded the ship with virtually everything that he had collected. Gold, jewelry, gems, pearls, and more. He even sent back a headdress containing more than 400 Quetzal feathers. The feather of the Quetzal bird was one of the most striking and valued feathers in Aztec culture. What Cortes sent back to the Spanish crown was far more than the royal fifth that they were due. But Cortes needed to impress upon the king and queen that he was on to something really big, and they could not afford to lose him. On the treasure ship, Cortez would also send the first of his famed letters. This first letter, it was one of five that he would eventually write, boasted to the crown about all the money that Cortes had spent on this venture, all the sacrifices he had made, all the accomplishments he had achieved, all the treasure he was sending back and all the treasure to come in the future. That is so long as Governor Valasquez was not allowed to interfere with Cortez. Of course, Cortez's decision did not sit well with some of the men. Who was he to give away their treasure? Many of the soldiers were sick and injured. They had families waiting for them, and many of them had no real allegiance to Cortez. Some just wanted to go home. It was here that a mutiny was hatched by some discontented members of the expedition. The leader was a man named Pedro Escudero. One of Velasquez's relatives, Juan Velasquez de León, was amongst the conspirators, as was one of the fleet's pilots and even a priest. The plotters wanted to take a ship and give chase to the treasure ship headed back to Spain, seize it, and take it to Cuba. Some reports I have read indicate that they planned to kill Cortez. They recruited men and even gathered supplies for this affair. However, as is so common amongst insurgent plots, someone got cold feet and the entire scheme was revealed. The leader of the plot, Pedro Escadero, was quickly executed. Gonzalo de Umbria, the ship's pilot we mentioned, had his toes cut off. A few others got 200 lashes, which could easily have killed a man, and they were imprisoned. Many of the lesser conspirators were eventually freed by Cortes at the encouragement of his officers. The expedition needed men for the coming campaign, and guys rotting in cells or in the hold of a ship did no one any good. Many of these men, including Juan Valasquez de León, the relative of the Cuban governor, went to Cortes and pledged to support him in exchange for his forgiveness. When it was all over, the mutiny was quelled before it had begun, and anyone who had been considering crossing Cortes was either dead or had submitted to his rule. This is what Cortes needed. He was preparing to march west into the heart of the Aztec Empire, and he needed his men committed to the task. However, the Captain General still had his doubts. He feared what would happen if things got rough. The Provalesca's men were in his corner, for now, but what about the future? He needed them on his side. He couldn't just let them go back to Cuba, and it was not realistic to leave them all at their crews. With the specter of revolt hanging over the entire expedition, Cortes did something that would forever make him famous. In July 1519, he ordered his ships sunk. Cortez claimed that the expedition's ships were worm-ridden and unseaworthy, which was probably true, at least to some degree. But in reality, Cortez was giving his men only one option, follow him. He would later say of his men at this moment, quote, they must either win this land or die in the attempt. Cortez would have anything of value stripped from the ships cannons, sails, rigging, nails, cables, and so forth, before scuttling the fleet. He would then leave approximately one hundred to one hundred and fifty men at Veracruz, many of these the sick and injured, under the command of Juan de Escalante, a trusted ally. They had orders to keep building up the fort and town, scout the area, and keep good relations with the local natives. Cortez would then prepare for his march west, a trek he was told that would not be easy. The Spanish army would consist of 15 cavalry and between 300 and 400 troops. Roughly 50 of these were crossbowmen and another 30 arquebusiers. The men would wear their full armor and were told to even sleep in it. The Sembo would provide Cortes with guides, as well as 50 experienced warriors and several hundred porters. The latter were important, as Cortes brought along with him the smaller cannons, the falconets. The larger guns were mounted on the walls of the fortress at Veracruz. On August 16, 1519, Cortes assembled his army and gave them a rousing speech, saying that they were a holy company who had no option but to go forward and win a great victory. Ahead of the Spanish were jungles, mountains, and arid plains and at the end of it all lay the great capital of the Aztecs, Tenochtitlan, and their mysterious all-powerful emperor, Montezuma. And with that, we will leave Cortez and his expedition here, poised to march west into the heart of the Aztec Empire. I hope you have enjoyed today's show. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you next time.